Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, psychotherapy, and the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of human suffering and the mysterious, mystical world of psychedelic drugs. I'm your co-host, Nathan Gates. And I'm your co-host, Brian Pilecki. We're two therapists and longtime psychedelic advocates who love to discuss all aspects of this fast-evolving field. Thanks for keeping it current with us. And thanks for keeping it weird as we dive into today's episode. If you're looking for a dependable platform for your psychedelic-assisted therapy practice or just your regular psychotherapy practice, look no further than Ozmind. We're excited to have Ozmind as one of our new partners at ASOC and as a supporter of this podcast. As the premier platform for this field, Ozmind provides an all-in-one system with customized charting for ketamine, spravato, and traditional psychotherapy, as well as a patient app with over 40 validated rating scales and secure messaging options. By joining Ozmind's Psychiatry Tomorrow newsletter, you'll also get access to over 10 guides and templates to help start and grow your psychedelic therapy practice. Take your practice to the next level with Ozmind. And you could join Osmind today by using our link, osmind.org slash ASOC. That's O-S-M-I-N-D dot org forward slash A-S-O-C. John Dennis is a lawyer, activist, and entrepreneur in the psychedelics ecosystem. He's the executive director of Vital Oregon, a psilocybin facilitator training program by Psychedelics Today, and the co-host of the Eyes on Oregon podcast by Psychedelics Today. John is a member of the Shakruna Institute's Council for the Protection of Sacred Plants. He is a member of the Psychedelics Bar Association and sits on its Religious Use Committee. John serves on the Executive Committee of the Oregon State Bar Practice Section on Cannabis and Psychedelics, and is a founding member of the Entheogenic Practitioners Council of Oregon. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Altered States of Context. I'm your host, Brian Pilecki, joined by my co-host, Nate. How's it going, Nate? Good. Excited for the conversation with John today. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest, John Dennis. Uh, John is a friend and colleague of mine out in Oregon and uh, has been very involved. I got to know you, John, over the course of the last year uh, in your work and advocacy related to Measure 109 and the Psilocybin Services Initiative that um, uh, you know was in planning stages and now is in some sort of, I guess, the beginning of the execution stage. Uh, and you've been highly involved in in, in that process. Um, so I thought maybe first you could just uh, introduce yourself to our audience, maybe give a little background about who you are and you know what your background is like. Yeah, thanks, Brian and Nate. And it's really great to be here with you guys today. It's an honor to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I am a, I'm a lawyer by training and um, have been uh, practicing law for uh, since uh, 2014. And, um, you know, I've I kind of I live in Ontario, Oregon, right on the eastern side of the state, on the along the Idaho border, and uh, I, I did some volunteering for the Measure One Hundred Nine campaign uh, back in twenty twenty, um, and 
was just been kind of following the process very closely. Uh, this being sort of like the first uh, program of its type really anywhere in the world. Um, it wanted to, I felt like kind of a privileged seat, at a front row seat at, at like kind of the historic unfolding of this process of introducing psychedelics into the West in a, in a mainstream and above ground kind of way. Um, so, you know, I just felt like this was one of the more interesting things I could kind of follow and and and, and watch. So I, I started going to the meetings back in March of 2021 after the law had passed and um, just really watching how, you know, regulators and, and, and advisors and, you know, professionals started like kind of approaching this question of what should psilocybin services or psychedelic services really look like? Um, so sort of kind of following it really closely. Um, and as time went on more and more, um, I found that there were parts of the conversation that in my view, either were missing entirely or were not being um, kind of adequately spoken to. Um, and so not because I felt like I was necessarily like the best person to speak to these things, but really because I was the one who happened to be in the room, <laughs> um, started kind of giving more uh, public comment uh, around, um, you know, religious freedom and, you know, kind of the, the religious and spiritual kind of uses uh, of, of psilocybin outside of a more kind of clinical type of setting and uh, kind of kept going kind of further into that. And, um, you know, and I have a background in poverty advocacy, uh, both as a lawyer and in, even before I became a lawyer, working at homeless shelters and and, and doing kind of, you know, soup kitchen uh, fundraisers and, uh, you know, running soup lines and things like that, or, or volunteering at them. Um, so that, like the kind of poverty issues, I mean, I grew up in poverty and it's always just been kind of a, a, an issue that's been really close to my heart. So when we start thinking about creating the world's first program like this, that's going to cost thousands of dollars to access. I mean, people that, you know, wouldn't even be affordable to my family growing up or probably even me now, <laughs> um, you know, so it just seemed like how can we set this kind of like really, uh, you know, this precedent that we set here in Oregon is just so critically important that um, I just decided it was a priority for me to, to engage in the process however uh, I could. Um, and so um, I just kept getting louder and louder and um, more um, outspoken about, you know, kind of some of these issues. So that's kind of um, how I come to it. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you've been there from the beginning. You were there volunteering to promote the bill. You uh, were were um, observing and and at the meetings where it was being uh, kind of hashed out and, and and then of course as time went on you became more outspoken or or you know more involved active in promoting these beliefs that and values that you thought were missing. Um, you know it's funny because the for for folks who don't know Measure One Hundred Nine was kind of sold to the voters in a particular way and. Um, you know, maybe I'm misremembering it, but like my sense of the original spirit was let's take psilocybin out of the medical model and let's make it cheap and accessible. And, um, you know, so we're not going to have, you don't have to have a licensed clinician. It could, you only need a facilitator, only needs a high school diploma. This way we can keep costs down. Uh, and then here we are after the, the two year process and, um, you know, the facilitator license is $2,000, the facility license is $10,000, uh, and the training programs are around $10,000 each. 
So, um, you know, how do we get there? How do we, where do we go awry and, and lose track of that? Or is, is that just sort of inevitable? Is this the best that, that one can do in the systems that we live in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, your uh, recollection of 109 as, you know, in the earliest days, because I, you know, I actually, um, thought there was like some inconsistent messaging, um, which which makes sense, I think, from a political standpoint. I mean, I, I think the, the campaign did polling uh, early on and found that, um, you know, the medical uh, kind of applications of psilocybin were the least controversial and the most likely to, to pass. So they really heavily emphasized those aspects of it. Um, you know, and, and probably even framed it in a way that made it sound like that's all they were doing, uh, or or at least n- not really putting people on notice that this is more than merely clinical or medical type applications. This is really supervised adult use. Um, so, you know, so that that's been, you know, I think even the board itself was under that same misunderstanding for quite a ways into the rulemaking process, uh, really. I think it was Mason Mark's article in November of 2021 through Chakruna Institute that said, I think it was entitled like warning, uh, Oregon did not legalize psilocybin therapy. <laughs> and, you know, um, so, so which I mean, there's still, which was, oh, sorry, but that was, I, I'm just highlighting it, you know, emphasizing that because that struck me as someone who's watching as just a, that article was a complete rebrand. You know, because that was not at all the way it was sold to the public. It was sold to the public as psilocybin therapy. And then obviously, and we're running to this in Illinois, we're working on a bill right now. And then obviously um, there presents a big problem there because on the one hand, like you're talking about, it's really popular psilocybin like therapy, medical use, mental health, right? But then you go and run headlong into the professional orgs about that. And so then it's a, that's a real tricky business, but go, go ahead. Sorry to to cut you off. I just wanted to emphasize that point because it's like a really crucial and interesting thing you're bringing up. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, I mean, I think that happens frequently in in politics, right? Like you emphasize the things that, you know, you think are less controversial and um, I don't necessarily find that to be like dishonest, uh, like at least not inherently. Um, I think, there was, you know, and, and in fairness, there really wasn't a lot of opposition to 109. Um, I think the Oregonian published an op-ed, you know, kind of opposing it. And I think the, Brian, you might actually know this better than I, it was the, like the Oregon, like therapist board uh, released a statement saying, you know, it's actually really ironic because they said, we don't think that therapy should be decided, you know, according to voters. It shouldn't be like a popularity contest. It should be done by, you know, medical people through a vetted process. So they kind of took issue with it, kind of circumventing the typical, you know, routes uh, themselves under the misunderstanding that this was about therapy, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, so that's been kind of an interesting uh, part of the the story that's been you know ongoing and evolving, and I think now we're at this point where I think there's a general recognition that psilocybin services in Oregon can include something that looks kind of therapeutic, um, although that's definitely not like what it's limited to, and so it can include you know really it's a consumer driven marketplace, so it can it'll be you know within the the bounds of the regulations and the law. 
what the market demands. And so I think it's just going to be extremely interesting to watch like this whole ecosystem uh, start to diversify and kind of become like a niche marketplace um, kind of really, really early on. I mean, I think there's going to be confusion and people are going to say like, yes, psilocybin, but very soon it's going to be like, well, yeah, but what kind of psilocybin or psilocybin how, you know, like just the fact that it's psilocybin won't be enough. It'll have to be psilocybin within this particular uh, container or through this cultural uh, framework or or something like that. But it's, um, you know, I think this is going to become a niche uh, ecosystem in a in very rap short order. Yeah. And for those uh, in our audience who may not be familiar with the bill and what's going on in Oregon and this what what we can call supervised use model, right, that other states are kind of looking after, you know, maybe you could summarize that briefly, John. Um, you know, my understanding is like it's you don't it's you don't need a mental health diagnosis. Uh, it's not you know, anybody could access it who, like you said, is a pain consumer who who's interested. So maybe you could just describe it briefly for those who aren't as familiar. Yeah. So the 109 doesn't allow the state. So it basically ties the state's hands and it does not allow them to um, restrict access only to people who are seeking it for medical purposes. So um, you're not allowed to, the state can't require a diagnosis as a precondition for access. Um, And it also can't impose, um, as you mentioned, um, educational requirements that are higher than a high school diploma um, to become a facilitator. So um, this is meant to be like a, a non-medical, I mean, high school diploma plus a, a training program, um, you know, and in full disclosure, I'm executive director of uh, Vital Oregon, which is a, a, faci- a, faci- you know, a, a company that's pursuing a facilitator training program through, uh, through, through psychedelics today. Um, and, um, you know, we, we're in the process of applying, but we haven't um, achieved that yet. So we're not legally allowed to hold ourselves out as a, as a training program yet, but um, we're, we're pursuing it and we're getting close, I think, to, uh, to opening. So, um, so little conflict disclosure there, but uh, so other than a high school diploma, plus one of these training programs, um, you know, and a state licensing examination and a fee, uh, you become a light, you know, a, a facilitator and, um, you know, it's a, it's a 160 hour program uh, minimum. Uh, so that's not a whole lot of training. And that's been one of the parts of this uh, that's kind of engendered more controversy than almost anything else is uh, how much or how light should the training be. And of course, too much training means it's really expensive. Uh, not enough training means people might get hurt. So where's the right balance of that? And I, you know, I think as it's it's a question that you know we'll we'll see um play out you know of whether this training is is enough whether uh, the state required the right uh pieces to be in there um and, and whether it left anything critical out that will result in harms occurring um you know and those kinds of things so um you know we'll, we'll just kind of this is this is the first iteration of this and so it'll be uh, really interesting to see how it goes on but um in terms of you know, what Measure 109 actually is, like what the spirit of 109 is, you know, is the, the people have to take psilocybin at one of these, at a, at a premises that's been licensed by the state. So unlike cannabis, where you go to a dispensary, you buy your product, you take it home and use it at home on your own. This is exactly the opposite, where you go to a facility 
you buy it at the facility, but you have to take it there and you're not really allowed to leave until, you know, you've gone through the entire uh, session. Um, and so before that session, you have to go through some pretty uh, cursory type of medical screening and some preparation with your facilitator to just kind of go through and figure out what your goals are and kind of what your, um, you know, kind of just set some ground rules and and, and those sorts of things uh, about the experience. So there's a, 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 li a little bit of prep work that's mandated uh, and you have the option to do a lot more prep work if if that's something that um, you want to do, but for, I think, a, a normal, uh, you know, non-therapeutic kind of application, if it is being taken in a more recreational setting by a person who's not psychedelically naive, I think you'll see um, probably really short relationships between facilitators and clients, and there'll be some that people are doing deeper work, uh, and I think there'll be a longer, more involved relationship, but um, there'll be, I think, some interesting variety of that that we see. Um, and then after the administration session, after a person takes psilocybin, uh, the somebody from the service center is required to call the client and just check in and make sure that if they don't necessarily need any support or offer uh, offer extra support and, and that kind of thing, and make sure that they're uh, taken care of in those ways. And then uh, also there's an option of providing integration uh, services um, in a non-directive manner so that the the, the facilitator isn't giving therapy, you know, to, to really help keep those lines clear and make sure that there's not like unauthorized practice of psychotherapy happening in the 109 system. So um, at a high level, that's kind of uh, the program. Yeah. And your question earlier, Brian, about the affordability, I think is, is really key. And um, so I think in some ways the state has their hands tied, right? Like they, they have to fund the program through licensing fees. Um, and so, especially when the program's new and there's not a lot of licensees, that means that the program has to, like the few licensees there are kind of have to bear a pretty high, um, you know, cost to, to become licensed. Um, and, you know, hopefully over time as the program grows and there's more people that come in, like that can be kind of balanced out. And then OHA or, you know, the psilocybin services section there uh, may be able to go into like more maintenance mode rather than build mode, which would also lower their costs. Um, so, you know, eventually those fees can can hopefully come down some. Uh, but, you know, that's that's the question is uh, how affordable can this uh, possibly be? Um, within the limits of the law. And, um, you know, I know there's a few nonprofits that are working at it uh, to see how affordable it can be made. And um, I've been working on a, um, a, a service center uh, project um, where we hope to be able to provide, you know, really low cost um, access. Um, and so I know there's uh, other people working on it. So it'll just be really curious to see um, how how far we're able to go with that and how much we can can really make this something that's truly accessible to to people like all people yeah that's um that is a really i mean it's a fascinating test case and there's so many um you know so many of us watching what's going on in oregon to uh, you know it's kind of you doing the first run through and um surfacing a lot of these issues that we know are going to come up everywhere uh, i wonder how this fits in the broader um say network of of uh because at the same time um Oregon decriminalized drugs generally but including psilocybin and so what other sort of um 
what does that enable as far as other containers? Like, you know, so like, is it, so this is the only program, obviously what the 109 program that's going to be above bar board and regulated and whatnot, but I assume there will be other um, forms of use and other like uh, religious uh, use that will be more protected because it'll be decriminalized there. And I, I wonder how you imagine this dovetailing or not with sort of the rest of the, I guess we could say psychedelic ecosystem there in Oregon. Yeah, um, so Oregon has uh, Measure 110, which is our decrim law, and there's a lot of kind of common misconceptions about what decrim even really means. Um, as I think we were talking to you before we started recording. Um, so Measure 110 in Oregon, a lot, it decriminalizes personal use amounts of, uh, you know, possession uh, of, of basically all drugs. Um, and it, what it doesn't allow is people to manufacture or harvest or uh, do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, you can't sell it. You can't even give it away. Um, so it really prevents anything above ground from happening because if you were to have some kind of a storefront, for instance, um, <laughs> that you were publicly, um, you know, offering, uh, it would be just as illegal today to to do that and to sell it and distribute um, than before our, our decrim law effectively. I mean, some of the penalties have been reduced, uh, but it's still still a crime and people still go to jail uh, for it. So um, it really doesn't allow any of that type of activity to come above ground, which is a, is a major uh, issue because, um, you know, from a harm reduction perspective, when we only allow people to work with these substances underground, it creates these kind of social uh, and legal conditions where uh, if somebody gets hurt or needs some kind of law enforcement assistance, they have to balance between the likelihood of getting in trouble uh, versus the severity of the need. Uh, and so mm -hmm. what happens is people delay or, or don't uh, seek help when they need it. And that's like why we have um, I keep this uh, person's name on my uh, desk. Uh, I don't know if you can see it, but it's uh, Brandon Begley. Um, and uh, he's a, he's a, I believe he was only 21, but he died at a, at a entheogenic uh, church in, in Florida uh, at the soul quest church uh, under a similar situation where, as I understand it, people were weighing between whether to call 911 when this uh, 21 year old kid was having uh, medical complications uh, from, you know, kind of a lot, drinking a lot of ayahuasca and taking combo together uh, multiple times over multiple days. Uh, and they delayed um, getting him access to services and he died. And so, um, you know, this is a really, this is, this is in some cases really a life and death type of issue that um, when we force this underground, it creates the conditions that cause things like this to happen. And um, it's not that people won't get hurt anyway, even if it's above ground, but, you know, the more access, the less kind of stigma that we give to this and the more kind of normalized we make it, uh, you know, we just promote more health and safety. And it's, it's from a policy level, it's just kind of a no brainer, but um, okay. so at least from my perspective, but, but then with, um, you know, like what you're talking about, the, the decrim piece, like in Oregon. Um, so there's not really like 109 and 110 really are like not 
connected in, in, in my view, but um, mm -hmm. because all one tin does is it just reduces penalties down to like a hundred dollar fine for, for possession. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a, it's a very, very um, skinny sort of decriminalization major. It, it's a um, certainly better than nothing, but it, it doesn't do a lot on that. I think that's one thing we were going for in Illinois was a much more robust um, effort on that front. You know, we, we, and, and so, you know, our approach in the law that we've written has been to um, remove it from the list of controlled substances. Right now, it's psilocybin and psilocin are removed from the list of controlled substances. And the advisory board will have, um, they will have the authority to recommend other substances to be removed as well. Like the board will be able to have that authority um, to to review the, you know, uh, other substances for that same um, process of being removed from the Controlled Substances Act in Illinois. So um, that's how we're, and what that does then is essentially it makes it so that it, it is, I mean, it's not a controlled substances. So the possession of it isn't a crime. Growing it isn't a crime. Giving it away isn't a crime. It's not even like a offense of any sort um, that would need to be regulated in like tobacco or alcohol are regulated. Because um, that was kind of what we were, you know, shooting for to be able to maybe regulate, to be able to regulate the sale of it. But that's about it. Yeah. And, and I think that the Illinois approach to descheduling is somewhat unique in my understanding. And I'll confess, I haven't had an opportunity to read the, the whole uh, bill there yet. There's, I think, 12 states that have bills this or, or, or ballot initiatives uh, just this year alone. I think I, I think I heard Graham Boyd say um, from from new approach at the uh, at the at his Horizons Northwest talk that he projected that by 2025 we'd have a majority of states that have some form of legalization uh you know at a, at a state level and so the it's the, making it it's actually making it kind of hard to to fundraise because there's so many of these initiatives happening that like a lot of the bigger funders that you go ask for money are like well we're already committed to the x and y state um so it's it's been made uh, a little tricky there's so so many people doing that that's what we're looking to do right now. So if you're listening and want to help with the Illinois, uh, in the, in the Illinois, uh, we, we're, uh, accepting donations because we, you know, trying to get a bill through, uh, Congress is, uh, expensive. <laughs> it makes it even hard to track from a policy level, like all of the detail going on all these places. I mean, you know, I was working at it, you know, maybe not quite full-time, but working, spending a lot of hours just in Oregon and even to follow Oregon in the level of detail um, that I think is required to actually say that, you know, what's going on there um, is, yeah. you know, I mean, that, that's a, that's a ton of effort just for one state. And now I think as this gets bigger and bigger, you know, to track all of the states and Colorado now is coming online um, just yeah. from like a, keeping a, a pulse on, on how this is all going. There's just so much detail now that it's like already becoming too too much for um you know one person to really track all of it so it's like this is the, yeah. the rate at which this is expanding is just kind of like mind-blowing but well and and we were the way you said that you're like in your mind 109 and 110 are just really not connected at all i think that's what we're you know in illinois trying to avoid you know when we're, when we're thinking of this like we view the um descheduling of psilocybin as sort of integral to making the bill work like in, in our view it doesn't work doing just the psilocybin services doesn't work without descheduling it because we want to open up 
a i just per personally i think a lot of us in the illinois psychedelic society who i'm working with just sort of view it as a you know basically a criminal justice reform issue on you know for one thing but then also um it does sort of open up because i'm we'll see i i, I mean i'm the cost issues are going to be there the issues of access are going to be there like as you're seeing in oregon even if you do a great job i mean there's still going to be it's going to be expensive running a program it's going to be expensive getting licenses and jumping through all those hoops and so it is going to be a regulated program um, and and so I don't think that that sort of top down designed by expert sort of program, I, I think it's fine. I think that, uh, you know, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad we're doing it in Illinois, but I don't think it's I'd like to see other more um, from the bottom grassroots um, approaches, uh, containers being built to have a chance to flourish. And so that's why, to me, this descheduling it makes that more possible you know you can have religious use you can have community use without fear of you know being on the wrong side of the law and I, my hope is that it, it allows kind of like that you know um a varying of approach so that we can find solutions that work well for people so to me they're a real package deal i i wouldn't i don't think support the bill i mean i know i've said i definitely wouldn't support the bill without the without the descheduling element in it yeah, the, the community use piece is so critical. And, um, you know, I think the thing that I guess worries me most about like this kind of fertile moment in for, for psychedelic policy is that as this we're moving like really rapidly towards legalization, like mass legalization, mass access, um, you know, there is this, there are people, uh, usually professional types like us in this, uh, in this recording, um, who stand to make a lot of money from these uh, systems. And, um, you know, like I saw in the, the New Mexico uh, law, they were going to require a minimum overnight stay for all people who access psilocybin there, which is like, from a safety perspective, just way overkill. I mean, there'll be maybe yeah. a, a really small number of people for whom that actually does like have a, a, a better outcome uh, that justify requiring them to pay for it kind of thing. But for, for the vast majority of people, that's just, I mean, it makes a lot of people a lot of money and doesn't necessarily yeah. create a lot more good. It just, so, makes a, just makes a really big like luxury spa industry. Like, like it just adds like a new, another luxury spa sort of treatment yeah i mean it's i i use this term psychedelic hospitality but i think that's what i mean that's what the industry is and i think that it ha and that has a place i mean there's nothing that's wrong with with that as an as an industry uh i don't think overall as long as it's not you know is that as long as that industry doesn't like crowd out you know on like community use or religious use or something like that where it becomes um, self-protective and, and aggressive and stops, you know, tries to, to, to prevent, you know, people from having affordable <laughs> routes. Um, but, but, you know, in New Mexico, that's the only way, uh, as I understand it, that you, a person can even access it there is if you pay one of these uh, facilities for an overnight stay. And so, I mean, that's the kind of thing where, I mean, I think it just creates this industrial complex that will yeah. make it harder and harder to uh, to to pass these um, you know more community based or community empowering initiatives. Um, so you know how 
you know, even in Oregon, where there really wasn't a whole lot of uh, money in it yet, because nobody's making money off of it yet. Um, you know, we saw lobbyist groups that were, um, you know, uh, influencing the process uh, from the earliest days and for community voices that came in to try to, you know, educate and and help inform, you know, the program by uh, like how psychedelics get used in the real world. Um, you know, we just kind of felt many of us, I think, really um, like somebody else got there first and because they got there first, uh, the minds were made up before uh, there was an opportunity to engage in these discussions. And then, you know, it was just like I, I, all this rulemaking effort when people's minds were already made up because, you know, someone else got there first and, and it was just kind of like the dog and pony show that, you know, just didn't really, um, it didn't matter what happened, like it was going to go a certain way. Um, and so that, that was really, I mean, I know I'm not alone in feeling that that was kind of how that went down. Um, and so it becomes even more challenging, I think, in future states where, um, you know, that now this precedent has been set, which doesn't necessarily prioritize, you know, community use, even within organs um, regulated only uh, access model. Um, could, you, so. could you, yeah, so you, you were a big proponent of the community use model. And I think your, your language for that has evolved a bit from when I first heard you talking about this, but maybe you could um, just define that briefly for our audience, because that is really an alternative to the supervised use model that we just talked about. So what is the community use model? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, so within Measure 109, I mean, Measure 109 has some requirements that you cannot escape, right? Um, so it is still within that whole system and that uh, kind of paradigm of go to a place that's licensed by the state, have prep sessions and screening, uh, have administration sessions that are supervised by licensed facilitators and, and all that sort of thing. So the all of that is still would be a part of, I mean, it, it's a necessary requirement of any legal access in Oregon is it has to go through all of that. Um, and so the, the challenge then was, you know, cause I think everybody on the board with maybe one or two exceptions, maybe three, uh, was either a doctor or a therapist or some kind of a medical professional. And so everybody, I mean, the, the tenor of the conversation was really focused through a medical therapeutic type of framework and not really, I mean, there was a couple of people who had a foot in community also that were part, you know, but but I don't recall even a single person ever in two years of rulemaking uh, talk about their own psychedelic experience as a basis for um, informing, you know, regulation, which is totally crazy, you know, because <laughs> we're still like, you know, in this transition period where they're still really heavy, heavily stigmatized, you know, to say I've done a psychedelic means you did something illegal unless it was in these limited clinical uh, settings. And so I think, um, you know, even, even at that level, at this high state level, um, no pun intended, um, you know, it's like nobody can even talk about their um, experiences or their, um, you know, the basis for which they're arriving at their their opinion, um, whether it's purely academic or whether it's informed by personal experience or experience of friends or community members or whoever. Um, 
So, um, yeah, so part of the initiative that we began uh, back really in January of 2022 was to, you know, kind of create at the time what I considered to be like the the religious container within the Metro 109 system, because there really hadn't been intentional discussion around like the containers of access, right? And so I think the assumption was that they'd all be, you know, medical, or maybe even there was some understanding of like wellness type containers for services like a spa, luxury spa or something like that. But really ceremonial religious use had not been squarely addressed, you know, which is shocking in light of the fact that we already have like U.S. Supreme Court decisions that support the right of people to take uh, psilocybin or, or uh, psychedelics in um, in religious uh, contexts. So, you know, and that's been kind of one of the major use paradigms uh, of psychedelics, really, uh, since humanity has had relationship with psychedelics, um, has been these kinds of you know, um, ritualistic, ceremonial, community type containers, and um, you know now. There's, um, you know, the state really didn't give um, priority or, or or preference to that. So, you know, I, I think that there was kind of a, a lot of learning that we all did going through this. But uh, so at the high level, the framework would have kind of optimized for um, a the community practitioner framework. It started as a as an entheogenic practice framework, which was a more religious uh, side. And as things evolved, it really kind of turned into a, a like a religiously neutral um, community practitioner framework. And so particularly what it tried to do is create, you know, things like that balance the safeguards so that they would be proportional to the safety needs for a particular use type. So instead of saying, for instance, and sorry, my dog's uh, always takes these uh, recordings as a time to uh, want to... <laughs> engage you know, with the speaker toys um okay. we're but, a dog friendly show it's all right <laughs> yeah oh um but he's um sorry i just totally lost my train of thought um yeah so so optimize for the well, um, the safeguards or the safety the safeguards needs. with the safety need yeah yeah so that there's like so this concept of proportionality like if the yeah. safeguards are too high it unnecessarily raises costs that will prevent people from accessing. It'll make, it'll make it price uh, cost prohibitive. If they're too low, then people get harmed. Right. Um, so to find the exact right amount, you know, is, is really, I think the, the challenge of, of regulating uh, a thing like this um, so that, it's as paternalistic as it needs to be, but no more paternalistic because um so that that tension and that balance is really what I kind of arrived at as the gold, the golden ratio or whatever, like the, the most important part of this is that you that it be that there be proportionality as kind of as, as the concept. Um, and so the way that the community practitioner framework uh, would have um, struck that balance would uh, particularly was along facilitator to client ratios. It would give uh, communities flexibility to decide how many uh, facilitators need to be there, um, you know, as opposed to imposing these minimum mandatory ratios. So um, under the regs that we have now, if a person's doing about a three and a half gram uh, session in a group session, 
and it's an 11 person, you know, 11 clients taking psilocybin together, the minimum amount of facilitators that must be present is six, you know, which is a lot <laughs> um, for that. And there's no option legally to do that with a with less, um, you know, facilitation assistance. So that's especially in the context of like sincere religious communities who have been working together for a lot of time. Six facilitators is is just kind of ludicrous, and it's not, you know, it's not proportional, right, to their to their particular needs. So, um, you know, and again, you can understand the state wanting to be cautious at first and that sort of thing, but um, you know, so that was. That was anyway one of the the main issues that we thought could have created a, a more flexible, more affordable program that the state didn't do, um, at least not yet. Yeah. And you know they're telling us to be patient and you know give give it time. And 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 I can kind of understand um, some of the the logic behind that. But the other big issues were kinda, oh yeah, go ahead. It's, it's kind of funny in that that you can you know um, kids can go out and, and um, race motocross. <laughs> speaking of proportionality right like there's a lot of totally dangerous stuff that's just fine and i'm not i'm not sitting here arguing that we should make that illegal at all i'm just noting that you know our tolerance for you know dangerous things um um is pretty high in a lot of areas but for some reason in this one it's it's like the, the, there is a real lacking sense of proportion that like well we can't have you know any risk at all um anyway yeah, and I think we we bring our professional biases with us into these conversations. And I mean, you can see regulators thinking that like they need this to be, you know, look like the therapy sessions, except with all these extra guardrails. And and you know, from the, if that's the lens through which you understand psilocybin, then maybe that makes sense, you know, on on some level. But you know, when you're talking about indigenous communities who have used it since time immemorial with, with zero licensed facilitators on hand, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or maybe just a totally different, uh, you know, thought about what qualifies a person to work with, with psilocybin, um, you know, yeah, you know, it's like, this is just such a, yeah, so we'll, we'll see how this shakes out, you know, but it's, it's definitely, um, you know, and then the alternative to it in 109 is that you break the law and you risk jail, right? So, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, one of I, 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 I agree that um, you know, there's sort of this argument like, well, let's start with what we've got and build from there, right? And that's I, I totally understand that perspective. Um, but one of one of your counter arguments that I've heard you make against that, John, which to me is very compelling, is uh, no, let's let's not wait because that's always the excuse when it comes to issues of access or or dealing with you know we'll, we'll fix we'll fix that later. But let's just do this now. And you know, uh, people of color and other marginalized identities they're, they're, that's the story they've always been told. We'll we'll do it later. And your argument mm. was like, no, this is important now because we're setting a precedent. We're building this from the ground up. Everybody's looking at us. So if we wait until later, uh, it may never get done. Well, then you have like what um, to, yes, that's right. You have like cannabis, cannabis is a, uh, and in Illinois, you know, we, you know, Illinois has gone through the, you know, the last few years, cannabis, and there is a lot of talk when we're, you know, uh, when we've been working on this law for the last year and a half um, of avoiding the mistakes that cannabis has made, which is basically 
allowed the you know for-profit interests to get a foothold and take over everything. Um, and once once they have their claws in, it, you ain't getting them out. Um, you know, like once you get a regulatory regime established, it's not going to change easily. Um, so getting it right up front, it, no, kicking it to later is a is a is a is a losing strategy. It's a terrible strategy. You want up front, try to get as much as you can, um, because that that's going to become entrenched. And so that's definitely a part of our strategy. And and, and you know, you mentioned too that um, you know Oregon setting a precedent. It is, but it's also giving a, a lot of other states a really good idea of what battle lines are going to emerge. So we've learned a lot, and I think it's allowed us in this process to, um, like, for instance, you know, in the law that we've proposed, um, the advisory board has a lot of different seats to a lot of different stakeholders. You know, we're like, no, we don't want them all therapists and, and, and doctors. We want we want a broad swath. So we have specific seats designated to many, many different stakeholders with many, many different perspectives. You know, that was one thing we learned. And then there's a lot of other things that we learned that you try to build into the process up front to make sure that it is going to be more. Uh, there is going to be a lot of different perspectives. It's not just going to be captured um, by, you know, a single interest. And in Illinois, at least, I think, you know, because I think... Um, Oregon, it just jumped out so quick. And I think it, it almost seems to me to caught a lot of people by surprise. In Illinois, I feel like we aren't quite as behind. You know, it doesn't feel like there was already a, a narrative that was um, established. Um, so at least I have the sense that that's really what we're trying to build in Illinois is to build a different narrative than than what you're describing as taking hold in Oregon. Um, and, you know, I for me, I kind of... Um, I do kind of think like the reg, the regulatory aspect is it. The part that's under state control is going to be under state control, and there's only so much you can do to make it. You know, like I mean, it's 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 Illinois for one thing, so it, it you know it loves regulation. But like any state that you have, in anywhere you're going to have once you have a regulatory regime, there's going to be that that sense of proportionality you mentioned is probably going to err on the side of. Um, overkill um but i think when we kind of do um we really wanted to build in this you know ability for community use and for religious use that you're talking about um that people can kind of do that um that was another one of the things we really learned from oregon is like we have to make space for other things to grow up as well um so i i think or the your process in oregon has been really helpful for many other states to kind of see okay as we're making these laws as we're getting involved you know, how do we, you know, work ahead of time to box out, <laughs> uh, you know, interests that are really just kind of in it for the money or in it for their own, uh, you know, like a very specific agenda. So um, it's it's very helpful to have that to, to, to look at. Thanks. Yeah, there's, um, I, I think I've had um, multiple conversations with Jonathan Goldman throughout this and have been kind of bending his ear and asking for his uh, wisdom. Uh, Jonathan Goldman is the um, Santa Daime uh, church member. He's the, I think the founder of the church of the Holy light of the queen, which is a Santa Daime uh, chapter in Oregon that sued the federal government in 2008 and ultimately won the right at, at the ninth circuit to drink ayahuasca or Daime uh, in, in religious purpose, in religious uh, ceremony, and 
uh, one of the things he keeps, you know, saying or that the lessons I've got, you know, that I've taken away from my conversations with him around regulation and religious use is like, there's a certain aspect of this that's like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you know, like, there's going to be this regulated side that is going to be highly paternalistic and just sort of lots of strings attached and all that. And if, and that, and that there's nothing necessarily wrong with, I mean, that is like, giving, you know, that is like the, it's it going to be what it is, but there really needs to be some other option. That's not that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, and I think that, you know, Colorado's law does a really interesting um, job of, of striking that balance. Um, or actually you're going to see two different ecosystems co-evolving there uh, probably in relation to one another, where you have their regulated access side, and then you have their unregulated uh, side which can still be sort of professionalized. So you're going to have these two concurrent uh, systems um, that uh, will be just really deeply fascinating to see how that evolves. But, um, you know. Tell, tell me more, if, if you might tell us more about that, Colorado, what you understand about the Colorado law and how it establishes those two different systems. I assume that the one is sort of like this regulated access, supervised use that roughly contours to what we're talking about with the state um, governed programs. Say more about how Colorado, like Colorado on the other side that you're talking about. Yeah. So in Colorado, their regulated side is different from Oregon's in several ways. Um, one, there's nothing in their, um, uh, you know, Natural Medicines uh, Health Act that prohibits the state from requiring a diagnosis, right? So in regulation, they may adopt a rule that says you must have a diagnosis to access through the regulated side. We don't know that yet. I mean, I hope that they don't, but... Um, it's possible. There's that option. Um, there's also no uh, rule on in their law that says um, that the state cannot require above high school diploma for a facilitator. So their regulated side might be more medical looking than Oregon's even, um, even despite the fact that on their board, um, their advisory board that's supposed to inform regulation, it would... Um, like there is a requirement of an indigenous seat. There's an option for a religious seat. And, you know, there are kind of some holes in the Oregon board that are better addressed in the Colorado board composition. Um, so, so on that, so that's the regulated side, right? And then they have this decrim side where you're not allowed to sell the substance, but you are allowed to sell your, but you are allowed to give things away. And you can sell services that are adjacent to the product. So um, I think that what we're seeing is a number of practitioners who are uh, either planning to or already have even start um, selling services and giving free products with very little uh, regulatory oversight. And, um, and, And I think, I mean, I think there will be there's still accountability for those folks that are, that will be legally enforceable. I mean, there will be uh, tort claims and, and those sorts of things. Like if somebody gets harmed because somebody sells something and they're irresponsible and somebody gets hurt, I mean, there's still going to be uh, things that hold people accountable. And I mean, even if, I mean, so, so I, 
before like shockwaves of fear, like, you know, go through everyone. I'm like, oh my gosh, like no regulation, no oversight, what? I mean, so as part of, I think the Colorado experiment, which is different than the Oregon experiment, um, you know, they will have people who, who aren't necessarily uh, highly accountable to um, DORA, the, the regulatory agency yeah. uh, there, um, and are more accountable just to the people that they serve, you know, and I think there's, there's pros and cons to that. And I don't, and, but, but I really love that, that this creates like something other than a one size fits all model, like, like Oregon's yeah. has one set of rules that all people have to apply to, uh, or have to, have to follow. Um, and Colorado really has this option where, um, you can have a more community-based thing and you don't have to go to the state and beg permission to get a license and to, and to become certified and all that and have to pay a bunch of fees, you know, as a person in Colorado today, I could grow, you know, sacrament, you know, um, multiple sacraments even, and provide them free of cost to my community and I could serve them and I could, you know, create like these, community containers and and that's yeah. totally legally permissible uh you know outside of the federal yeah. uh prohibition that's still in effect but sure um, so yeah, that's neat that's neat i think that that we're you know hopefully that that's much more like what color like we're aiming for much more what you're describing in colorado i mean that's not aiming for it. that's what the bill at this point does it's, it brings up an interesting um you know obviously you have a huge difference between a ballot initiative and a you know legislative legislative process because this legislative process is you know hey this is the bill as it's written but it does not mean it's the bill that's going to be passed so that's you know there's a which has a pros and cons you know it does allow more flexibility um to address problems like legitimately like ooh that doesn't work we can you know like it's easier to fix than something that's you know once it's a ballot initiative and it's been voted on it's it's not very flexible this can be flexible, but then it also allows interest groups, uh, you know, a lot of sway in the process. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, we're just at the beginning of it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, in the bill, it's, it's specifically written We're you know, it's, it's supervised use, not, not, um, you know, it, it, at the point of prohibit right now prohibits a uh, diagnosis, um, being required. Um, but again, this isn't, you know, it's not the bill that's, certainly there will be changes um so that's why it's so important we've been really trying to get people involved in illinois because um you know legislators listen to people sometimes <laughs> hopefully <laughs> the, you know, the, one, the ones that we've been working with have been really great um you know and so um to have it, people showing interest on the side of more um more access you know and, and a, a more creative ability to allow for community community use and and it, you know hopefully that's where we end up yeah and i i think as you know it's a consumer driven ecosystem um you know the question is how much do you need to curtail like freedom of consumer choices i mean and I don't, I don't, I haven't really heard very many people talking about uh, that question uh, yet of like how, I guess, how much paternalism is, is really appropriate. 
Um, you know, there is this longstanding tension in psychedelics in the West that goes back to Leary and uh, Huxley of like, how, uh, you know, is this a thing for the elites or is this a populist uh, kind of uh, thing? And, um, you know, people haven't, I mean, we, I mean, so I think that's like a, a fundamental tension within psychedelics as all these regulated things roll out and these legal reform efforts yeah. roll out. Um, you know, how just from a fundamental like framework to view these these issues through is like, is this an elite system or is this a populist system? And I think that, you know, the the thing I hope just is to see more uh, populist access that it's not, you know, just so pretentious and, and guarded that it becomes inaccessible. And and yet within these other um, more stripped down, you know, community populist type models. The, I think we as as practitioners and as stewards of it, I think really want to um, make sure that we're also that with with that trade off and that kind of stripped down version that we're still, you know, creating just like really safe containers and really safe spaces yeah. and, you know, really supporting people. And, and I think that as a concept, like when it comes down to like a regulated or a less regulated or unregulated side, I think the vast majority of people are going to prefer the unregulated or less regulated side because it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be more yeah. culturally um, dialed in and appropriate for a person. It's going to be closer to like their own values and, and within their community. And I think that ultimately the community container is going to be such a better access model just because, you know, I, I might go to a professional and I might pay them to try to create feelings of safety and attachment and that sort of thing. So that throughout this um, experience, I feel safe and I feel well held and I feel seen and that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, that's still a sort of a clinical contrivance that um, is yeah. trying to approximate and at some level what happens just totally organically and naturally for free in community. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You're, you're that tension that you highlighted that's historical, you know, in the psychedelic movement. Um, you know, an, another piece of this um, is the, the attitude and, and I sort of speak for the scientific community. Not that I think everyone, you know, this is my opinion. So my sense was that a lot of the, the, the researchers took this like perspective of let's be super careful and rigorous and cautious. And, um, and, and that's the only way that we're going to, we're going to get this legitimized. We're going to build the capital. We're going to get the trust by playing the science game, by playing the medical game. Uh, and, and uh, the sort of metaphors coming to mind of like a Trojan horse, like we're going to sneak it in and then, all then it's going to open up, you know, and it's sort of like the disagreement now might be like, when, when do we open that Trojan horse up? Have we gotten to the point where it's like stable enough where we can start to really open this up or does there need to be further medical legitimization, which is coming? I mean, there's FDA approval for MDMA, there's FDA approval for psilocybin. And so I, you know, I think on the positive side, those, those routes are strengths and will help legitimize and destigmatize and all of that. Um, and I completely agree that it's that that can't be the only model. Um, mm. And that's something that Nate and I both agree philosophically very much about and 
and, and try to talk about because it's so limited and, and just replicates so many systemic inequities on and on and on. So, uh, you know, I think the the sometimes, you know, scientists or uh, policymakers get a bad name and, you know, and, and I think some, you know, some of them are just naive. They've never done psilocybin and I agree that's problematic. Uh, but I think some of them are also just coming coming from a place of like safety and caution and and wanting to, um, you know, re- represent the psychedelic movement with dignity and and integrity is uh, I think a better word. You know that's uh, you know I don't I'll add to that. That's a really good point, and I love how John you framed it. I had never really um, looked at it that way, and I think in framing it as this sort of like elite versus sort of a populist approach. I mean, I think it contours, it maps onto a lot of broader contours that are happening in our culture and society right now. Um, and I also think it, it explains a little bit about how these issues are so divisive, you know, within psychedelic communities themselves. I mean, this like, it gets, it, you know, it gets nasty out there. And, um, you know, I like to use, you know, I play twi- uh, you know, on, on Twitter a lot. And, um, you know, often the, the conversation around uh, psychedelics on Twitter is very unpleasant because a lot of people who are, you know, really involved and invested, it just like, like these issues. And I think that a lot of it is this elite versus sort of populist. Um, I, I think that maps pretty well onto this. So it's, so that's a really nice way to frame it. And I, and I do think, you know, when you had it, uh, it become illegal, um, you did see like it was a really effective censorship campaign, you know, academics and, and um, uh, you know, a less charitable way of, of viewing it might say careerists sort of backed away from it. But people who really cared about it didn't, um, you know, and can continue to carry it on. So I think that there's probably some lo- I think there's some longstanding resentment of like people who have been carrying the torch for a long time. And now, you know, academics want to swoop in and say, well, let's be cautious here. What we don't know, what we don't know, and we need to take things slow. And it's sort of like, well, fuck you. Where have you been? Um, uh, and I think that that's fair. Right. And I appreciate too, the, the research, I, I, I'm a person who believes that both things should be able to coexist, but I, I do think that there is understandable and I would support, you know, the idea of not giving privilege or priority to, you know, our extra power to the academic uh, community in this. Like, I think what they're doing is great and they can support our uh, enhancements of knowledge, but I don't think they deserve a particularly privileged seat at the table personally. Yeah. I I think that's a really great um, point is like how, like if all we had was religious and community voices and no doctors and therapists, that would also be a really deficient board composition, right? Like we are all needed (laughs) and we all, I think have to have a certain level of humility of we each only have a certain like analytical framework that we bring to the equation and they're all important. They're all necessary, but all of them are only partial and each one is incomplete unto itself. So, you know, that's, and I'm glad to see in the Illinois bill, just like kind of, it feels like a lot of different seeds, almost like, I wonder, it's like, that's a really large board with a lot of people, but um, I think it's like 15 or 17 people or something. That's, um, but but to have that many, it'll be a mess. It'll be a total mess with that many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but I but the, the spirit behind it, I think, is so good, and I think that it's like definitely like light years forward from what happened in Oregon, which is like extremely medical with only like a couple of like people who don't really fit those seats um, as 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 precisely. Um, so you know that's you know, and of course the governor could point 
people who fill the qualifications technically, but still are like 90% like yeah. medical. But um, so it's not yes. like, but, but Brian, to your point, I think it feels sometimes like I find myself just like taking shorthand and, and kind of feeling like feeling under attack by like the medical therapeutic world. And that's not good either. And that's not accurate because um, I, I feel like we have kind of taken this defensive posture because we've felt like that there's such a, like a, a strong, like overreach um, so that we have to really kind of fight just to have a, a seat at the table. And yeah. it's kind of created this like tension where that feels like there's a, a conflict between these two positions. And they're really, and, and I just want to like, challenge that and and hopefully not you know propagate those narratives where let's like it, there is a fight you know between right. anyone because that's really not healthy or helpful uh in any way but yeah except when there is actual overreach happening <laughs> and then you know sometimes you do have to fight i guess yeah well and and that's uh, I, and I appreciate you saying how Oregon has hopefully identified where the battle lines are going to be because, you know, I mean, it took two years of going through it before I think, you know, I mean, I kind of finally arrived at like where I'm how I feel about and, and the way I think about these issues has evolved, you know, a lot in this process and hopefully, you know, those issues can be, um, you know, other people don't have to have the same kind of steep learning curve that we did um, to, to identify, you know, just this tension between elitism and populism. And, you know, what do you do with the problem of the problem of healthy normals, you know, so-called, um, and how do they fit into uh, the, the equation? And yeah. well, your, your, your actual fingerprints are on the Illinois bill. I know that Gene, you know, he talked and consulted to you about, you know, specific issues, you know, what's the, you know, what's, you know, how can we protect religious use most effectively? Um, I mean, that was a concern of ours. Like, well, how do we build this in? How do we build in the capacity? And, um, you know, I believe maybe, maybe I'm off, but, but essentially the, the advice there was as broad a decriminalization uh effort as possible would you know rather than don't build it into the law itself because then you're putting it under the regulatory regime instead just protect it by making it not a crime um so that was that was the approach we took i that's like music to my ears you know i i think <laughs> i felt for a while like all of that effort in oregon didn't really achieve very much in terms of the final regs that went out in oregon and so i went through a phase after rules got adopted where i just was like feeling like all that effort was for her. Mm. You know, you wonder when you pour so much of yourself into a project and it, it doesn't go the way you think it does, like, how do you, uh, you know, process that or whatever. And it's just, it's really a great relief to my heart to see uh, some of that be uh, taken and ran with another jurisdiction so that, you know, we need not all make the same mistakes that uh, happened in Oregon. Yeah. And you know, give I think us a little what, bit of a head start. What you know, what what we're doing in in some ways, I think, is so such a big monumental task is is deciding how how to integrate psychedelics into our mainstream culture, how to bring them above ground, right? And these mm -hmm. and those are other old tensions. Is it a spiritual context? Is it a medical context? Is it is it a rec, you know recreational? And and I think to to Oregon's fault i always thought it was just trying to be everything all at once and then it was really maybe nothing 
um, at times, you know, because it would like, you know, we would it, it was presented very much as a therapy bill, you know, and, and so if you look at some of the commercials that were on TV, they all talked about psilocybin therapy for depression, you know, and um, and and so, you know, I, I think the 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 folks who are, you know, on the committee volunteering, spending hours and all the time, people like you, John, who devoted hours and hours and hours to to to, to help sort all this out is it's it's really quite remarkable and and so um so important and and so complicated just so complicated to think about all these different issues and it really does force at least for me it forces me outside of my normal like ther you know psychologist like frame of thinking and my my little bubble of talking to other site other mental health professionals like it really forced me to to consider all these other uh, paradigms and, and ways of thinking and understanding. And uh, so it, it's a huge task. And I think everyone agreed Oregon wasn't going to get everything right. Um, hopefully we got enough right. And hopefully uh, folks, you know, like in Illinois and Colorado and other states will continue to take the torch forward and uh, we can all learn from each other. Because, you know, and that's the thing, if, if like, um, it's like, like I mentioned, you know, like, based on what you said john about like hey get it right up front because this is then it'll be sort of like the existing um uh regime re regulatory regime will kind of get its hooks in and it'll be really hard to change and i think that that's true but also like that's part of the beauty of um being able to do it state by state is if one state does something and it's just working way 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 better you know, that'll be able to come and influence what another state started with. So if Oregon, if you're, if you're just really tripping up and, and say we, uh, I mean, it's wildly optimistic, of course, but say in Illinois, we get a few things, uh, you know, noticeably better that work noticeably better. Um, then it becomes a lot more likely that Oregon comes back and says, well, Hey, they're, they're, they're really doing a better job out there. And, and, and even if that challenges some interest, if you really have, uh, an, an example of something that's working better, it, it, you know, it makes it so that you can improve more easily. Um, so I think it's kind of, that's kind of the neat thing about um, being able to make these changes state by state is, you know, you don't have to get it all at once and different states can try different things. And there will be kind of a, a marketplace, so to speak, to see, you know, what's working better. I really love that. Yeah, there's, um, I, I think, great benefit to our federalist system that gives, creates these little mini laboratories of a state to try out different things. And I also see this really strong push uh, federally from, you know, I think well-intended organizations to create uniform standards uh, that would, and, and I think there's uh, such a rush to craft those that, and to make this all uniform so fast. And, and I, and I, I'm really concerned by that because even though I, I think yeah. it's well-intended, it also, uh, kind of stops this from being kind of a community driven process and for this kind of like ripe ex phase of experimentation and 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 figuring things out you know because i think if there is like one uniform standard that means necessarily like an overly safe and overly restrictive and i don't mean to say like we don't want people to be safe but you know uh, yeah. where the the safeguards are out of proportion to the safety right. needs um kind of thing um, would be when you have one top down things like that, you know, who, you know, whose perspective is going to be favored, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just know, like it's, it's the top down approach, which is exactly what you're saying. So this allows bottom up, you know, like, let's find what actually works for people. 
And there's this like this idea in law that we see, um, you know, in um, I think there is this uh, tort called um, intentional infliction of emotional distress, where if I do something that's just outrageous in the extreme, even if it's not and it and it causes somebody foreseeable extreme emotional distress, um, then then it can be I can be sued for it. Right. And the standards I think most states adopt for that is a community standard for what constitutes outrageous in the extreme. And I think that that kind of ability and, and that it's not only found in there in law, but it is found like that in, in multiple places in law where there is this community standard that is local. And I think that what w- my hope for psychedelic uh, re- legalization and, and regulation is that there's some space for community standards that might allow Portland to look different than Birmingham, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, and, and to make, yeah. it, I mean, to me, that's fundamentally about empowering communities to make decisions for, for their communities. And when we rush to a uniform national standard, it really uh, calls out diversity and, and differing opinions that, you know, I think are really, um, important, especially in this early stage of this process, where you know I think people are are still figuring out how to how psychedelics could potentially fit into their lives and how it could benefit them. Um, just to give a quick plug for Vital Oregon, the facilitator training program through Psychedelics Today that I'm the executive director of. You know, our approach to training is really kind of fundamentally a community approach where. You know, because 109 isn't launched yet, we don't know how um, psychedelics are going to fit into people's lives and what, like, within this program and and what the consumer-driven needs are going to be. But we think that there'll be, you know, people will engage in microdosing, people will engage in sort of more social or recreational type uh, uses, people will engage in wellness use and inward-looking use. And so our program really tries to teach to, you know, as a, as a foundations course to each of these different sort of paradigms so that, you know, as people start to explore psychedelics and find places where these fit into their lives, that, um, you know, that we create some basic competencies around like what, how to do that safely and how to kind of help people to find where it fits in for them. And that's like, something that I think as a broader like long-term social experiment or social question of like what like how does how, how does this fit um you know I think there's going to be more that gets developed with each of these paradigms and becoming more kind of uh, particularized with different ethical rules even that would follow you know a medical use versus a religious use and and you know there's whole I mean, each of these kind of paradigms, I think, has to be really refined ultimately um, into into where it, where it will go. But because yeah. this is also new, we just haven't really thought through all this yet. Yeah, yeah. I wanna, I wanna, I th- at least I wanna coin a term here. At least I think I'm pointing it. I haven't heard it before, right? But this is like where two big um, themes of things I'm passionate about flow together. Um, psychedelic localism. <laughs> that's what I'm here, That's what goes through my mind when you're describing that. It's like a, a form of like psychedelic localism that is particular uh, to its uh, to its microculture. You know, like in a, in a particular area and reflects the needs and and you know and the local culture of of, of the people involved in that community. Um, 
psychedelic localism. Yeah, like, yeah, community, yeah, local communities, standards and values. I think it's like, I mean, why wouldn't we want that? <laughs> you know, yeah, local autonomy. I mean, it's it's kind of the the basis of our federalist system is to respect that people will see things differently and to give and to honor those um, differences, you know, and to celebrate them even. Yeah. Well, and our society right now is, is such a, uh, I think it's at this place where it's, there's been such a centralizing tendency for so long, you know, you know, increased, uh, you know, increased, um, you know, federal power, increased consolidation of economic power in, uh, you know, in cities and in large corporations um, that, um, you know, this decentralization and, and, and empowerment of localities is that, that's, I really care about that a lot. And so, um, this seems like a way to, um, mash those two things together that I feel a lot of intensity towards each of them. Well, it was great chatting with you today, John, and yeah, I really appreciate all of your work uh, uh, in in this area and your willingness to be a, a, a bit of a spokesperson for these values and these um, causes that you're advocating for. Uh, you've been, you know, in Oregon, very active in our, our local community and uh, have a lot of, uh, you know, respect and, and gratitude for for your uh, for your important you know, advocacy work and it takes time and effort and it's not easy and it's painful, I'm sure at times. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this at a theoretical level today, but there's tons of blood, sweat and tears that go into all of these movements. And, and so I really want to thank you for coming on and sharing your experience and wisdom with us today. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just such a, this is, this work has been just such a, a, a tremendous honor and blessing to be able to, to engage in, in, in this. And it's been really one of the greatest blessings of my lifetime. So it's just such an honor to share it, uh, you know, here uh, with, with you guys and your, your audience uh, today as well. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Take care and we'll see you at our next episode. Take care, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Altered States of Context. If you haven't already, please sign up for our newsletter by going to alteredstatesofcontext.com. You'll also find information there about where to find us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Your listening means a lot to us, and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great trip.